Today's sermon text is from Acts chapter 24, verses 1 through 27. Acts 24, 1 through 27. And after five days, the high priest Ananias came down with some elders and a spokesman, one Tertullus. They laid before the governor their case against Paul. And when he had been summoned, Tertullus began to accuse him, saying, Since through you we enjoy much peace, and since by your foresight, most excellent Felix, reforms are being made for this nation, in every way and everywhere we accept this with all gratitude. But to detain you no further, I beg you in your kindness to hear us briefly. For we have found this man a plague, one who stirs up riots among all the Jews throughout the world and is a ringleader of the sect of the Nazarenes. He even tried to profane the temple, but we seized him. By examining him yourself, you will be able to find out from him about everything of which we accuse him. The Jews also joined in the charge, affirming that all these things were so. And when the governor had nodded to him to speak, Paul replied, Knowing that for many years you have been a judge over this nation, I cheerfully make my defense. You can verify that it is not more than twelve days since I went up to worship in Jerusalem, and they did not find me disputing with anyone or stirring up a crowd, either in the temple or in the synagogues or in the city. Neither can they prove to you what they now bring up against me. But this I confess to you, that according to the way, which they call a sect, I worship the God of our fathers, believing everything laid down by the law and written in the prophets, having a hope in God, which these men themselves accept, that there will be a resurrection of both the just and the unjust. So I always take pains to have a clear conscience toward both God and man. Now after several years, I came to bring alms to my nation and to present offerings. While I was doing this, they found me purified in the temple without any crowd or tumult. But some Jews from Asia, they ought to be here before you and to make an accusation should they have anything against me. Or else let these men say themselves what wrongdoing they found when I stood before the council, other than this one thing that I cried out while standing among them, it is with respect to the resurrection of the dead that I am on trial before you this day. But Felix, having a rather accurate knowledge of the way, put them off, saying, When Lysias the tribune comes down, I will decide your case. Then he gave orders to the centurion that he should be kept in custody, but have some liberty, and that none of his friends should be prevented from attending to his needs. After some days, Felix came with his wife Drusilla, who was Jewish, and he sent for Paul and heard him speak about faith in Christ Jesus. And as he reasoned about righteousness and self-control and the coming judgment, Felix was alarmed and said, Go away for the present. When I get an opportunity, I will summon you. At the same time, he hoped that money would be given him by Paul. So he sent for him often and conversed with him. When two years had elapsed, Felix was succeeded by Porcius Festus. And desiring to do the Jews a favor, Felix left Paul in prison. The word of the Lord. Amen. Amen. Contrary to much popular opinion and contrary to what many of us think, though we don't dare say it, you know, God never promises his people trouble-free lives. Never promises us a life free of trials. In fact, if you honestly read the Bible, the Bible assumes the very opposite of that. Psalm 34 and verse 19, the Bible says, Many are the afflictions of the righteous, but the Lord delivers them out of them all. Now, we want to focus on the second clause and pay little attention to the first clause, which the first clause says clearly, many are the afflictions of the righteous. Many. 
What about one of our favorite passages of Scripture, Psalm 23, verse 4? Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, right? I shall not fear, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. There seems to be an assumption there, isn't it? And the assumption there is that I am going to walk through the shadows of the valley of death. And it seems to be a given. One of the principles that the Bible teaches us, however, is that though these troubles and these trials in this world are inevitable, the Christian need never lose heart. Because there's a God who is going to deliver. There's a God who will be with you. He will guide you. His rod and his staff will protect you. It doesn't mean you won't have trials. It just means he's going to be there. It doesn't mean you're not going to have affliction. It just means that he is going to delight to the deliver us. So therefore, Christian understands that in this world, we will have trouble. We will have trial. But we don't lose heart. We don't lose heart because we have a God who has promised. We get to this portion of Acts, this last portion of Acts as we've come to here, 23, 24, and going on. Paul was a prisoner. In fact, in Acts chapter 23 and verse 18, he is called Paul the prisoner. Paul the prisoner, and from now on, everything that you read about Paul from now on, you will read as Paul the prisoner. For the rest of his days on this earth, he will be a prisoner. Trouble, trial, and affliction will be his portion. And yet, beloved, it is from this status, in this status that we see that Paul does not get discouraged, that his current status as a prisoner and even going forward even unto his death as a prisoner does not fully discourage him. In fact, it is from this status as a prisoner that Paul would preach Proclaim and praise the name of Christ. Christ assured him that he had a plan for him. His plan was for Paul to be in chains. And yet, the Lord's dream for Paul was not just that he would be bound but that he would in his prison proclaim the grace and the mercy of God and faithfully trust in the God who has afflicted him. We come to Acts chapter 24. And the Paul who was in prison and who was bound as a prisoner in Acts 23 is now the Paul who is on trial. They have brought the prisoner into the courtroom. After five days in Caesarea, the Bible says, Paul, who has been bound, is now getting his hearing before the governor, Felix. All all the parties are in place. The courtroom is set. This is a courtroom drama. The courtroom is set, right? Right? All the parties are there. Felix is the judge. The Jews who are accusing Paul and wanting to prosecute Paul, they've 
hired a high-priced attorney, a lawyer, a spokesman, a professional talker, it says, to tell us their witnesses have arrived and the defendant, Paul, is in the dock. The Bible says the judge opens the court and Tertullus begins to speak. Now you understand, this is, this is high stakes. This is a high-priced fella. I mean, this is, this, is, this is big law firm stuff. You know, this dude hadn't just opened his practice. I mean, he's got a high-rise in downtown. You know, and uh, when he begins, begins to speak, you can see why. Notice what he says in verse 2. Since through you speaking to the judge, Felix, the governor, since through you we enjoy much peace and since by your foresight, most excellent Felix, reforms are being made for this nation in every way and everywhere. We accept this with all gratitude. But to detain you no further, I beg in your kindness, to hear us briefly. It's full of flattery, beloved. If the governor had an ego, and he did, Tertullus knew how to stroke it. No offense to the lawyers in the place. Tertullus spoke with flattery, but not only did he speak with flattery, he spoke falsehood, didn't he? Well, he falsely accused Paul. He accused Paul of being a plague, a, a carrier of disease and infection. He called Paul a troublemaker. In fact, not just a troublemaker, but he said that Paul was the ringleader of the troublemakers. He spoke with flattery. He spoke falsehood against Paul. And then after he's finished speaking, however, notice that Paul responded with confidence, didn't he? Forget all the flattery, forget all the falsehood. Paul understood that he had the truth and was confident that the truth was going to win the day. And that's why he can say in verse 10, but I cheerly, I cheerfully make my defense. Give me time here, Felix. I will cheerfully make my defense. So what does Paul say? He says, yes, it's true. I went up to Jerusalem. But I went there to worship just like everybody else, not to start a riot. They know that. He says, I was in Jerusalem, and they know that I was not disputing. They can't bring anybody here who can actually truthfully charge me with that. I was not arguing. I was not inciting anyone to revolt against Rome. Felix, go back and check the record. And I'm not a heretic. Contrary to what they say, contrary to what Turtleus is saying, I'm not a heretic. I am not a leader of heretics. That's not what I'm guilty of. But while we're here, let me tell you of the things of which I am guilty of, Judge Felix. If you want to try me for anything, if you want to charge me for anything, charge me with this. Charge me with worshiping the one true and living God. Guilty as charged. Charge me of believing that the Bible and the scriptures are the word of God and they are truth. Guilty as charged. Charge me with believing that there is a such thing as a resurrection of the dead and hope for eternal life. Guilty as charged. Charge me with seeking to live my life faithfully before God and with integrity in front of everybody else. Charge me with that. Guilty as charged. So much for Tertullus. Because the Bible says that when Felix finished hearing Paul, he was like, hmm. seems to be that he was 
more convinced of Paul's arguments than he was of the Jews. Seems to me that he was more impressed with Paul's reasoning than he was with Tertullus's reasoning. But not wanting there to start a riot and not wanting there to look as if he was siding with this quote unquote insurrectionist. Felix, Bible says, being familiar with the way, being familiar with Christ, and being familiar with the Lord's teaching, decided though he would not set Paul free, he would hold Paul, but give Paul some liberty. He would hold Paul, but not condemn Paul. In fact, not only would he hold Paul and not condemn Paul, but he wanted to hear more from Paul and decided that he would invite Paul back to discuss with him and his wife, Drusilla, more about this thing called the way, to hear more about this Christ. And the Bible says, when Paul came back, verse 24, he preached faith in Christ. And summed up that faith in Christ in three crucial points, didn't he? Righteousness, self-control, and the coming judgment. Righteousness self-control, and the coming judgment. Here is the Apostle Paul in the dock, standing before the governor, Felix, and his wife, Priscilla, given the opportunity to speak to the powers that be and he preaches Christ. But how does he preach Christ? He preached Christ righteousness, self-control, and the coming judgment. Now, beloved, he preaches righteousness because faith in Christ is grounded in the righteousness of God. You don't preach Faith in Christ without grounding that faith in the righteousness of God. Now, what do we mean by righteousness? Righteousness simply means, if I can just put it as simply as simple as possible, righteousness means doing and being right. Simple as that. Now, I'm going to open up a systematic theology this morning. Just going to put it in simplest terms. To be righteous is just to be right. To be righteous is to do what is right. It is to understand that there is a standard of living that is a right standard. That there is a way of living, that there is a way of thinking that is right. It is the idea that your actions are justified and they are justifiable. When we talk about biblical righteousness... What we mean is that there is a right way according to the word of God, and it is God's way. Now, no doubt, when Paul begins to talk about righteousness in front of Felix and Drusilla, this would have been eye-opening, eye-opening to them Because 
like most of us, they thought that they were living their lives right. And the reason that they think that is because, like us, we think right is as we see it. We think right is as we think it. We think right is as we feel it. So it was with Felix and Drusilla. Drusilla was Felix's third wife. And their marriage was an adulterous one. He had put away his second wife because he had seen this young teenage girl and lusted after her, Drusilla, who was married to another man at the time, seduced her away from him, and now here they are, governor and governess in Caesarea. And who's going to tell them that they're not right? Beloved, the righteousness of God was totally foreign to Drusilla and Felix as it is to most people. And it's foreign because, as the Bible says in Romans chapter 10 and verse 3, being ignorant of the righteousness of God, what do people do? They seek to establish their own righteousness because they do not want to submit to the righteousness of God. Self-righteous. People do what is right in their own eyes. How often have you heard people say, well, you know, that's true for you, but that's not true for me. Because the idea that we live, the culture in which we find ourselves, this world would like to tell us and remind us that you have no right to tell me what is right. That if it feels good to me, then it must be right. And that's why Felix could look at Drusilla and look at all of Caesarea and say, if loving her is wrong, then I don't want to be right. (laughs) Yet the Bible reminds us plainly, beloved, that there is a righteousness of God, a standard to which he holds every human being responsible. And that's why the Bible could say that there is no one, there is none righteous. No, not one. Why? Because all of us have decided on our own what is right in our own eyes. Every one of us. That's why the Bible says in Romans chapter 3, not only is there none righteous, no, not one, but all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Every one of us, there is none righteous, no, not one. This is why the gospel is so because in Romans chapter 3 and verse 21 the Bible says but now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law the righteousness of God through faith in Christ Jesus for all who believe When Paul preaches righteousness, he is preaching a righteousness that God requires and a righteousness that only God can provide. There is only one way to be right, and that is to be in Christ. There is only one way. To be right, 
and it is not in your own eyes. You must be in Christ. When you stand before God, God is not interested in hearing about your righteousness because you have none. The only, the only plea you will have is the righteousness of Christ. If God was to ask you this morning, why should I let you into heaven? Your string of church attendance is going to do you no good. Your giving and tithing and giving to the poor and serving and helping and playing and preaching and singing and cleaning and stacking and whatever else you think you do is going to do you no good. The only proper answer at that time is to fall on your face and say, God, I have no argument and I have no plea. All I know is that Jesus died and he died for me. That's it. That's it. The only righteousness that God requires is the righteousness you can't do. But you must have. And it comes by faith alone in Christ alone. Paul tore down. He tore down that idol of self-righteousness to Drusilla and Felix. But he didn't stop there, beloved. He not only preached the righteousness of God, he also preached self-control, didn't he? This is the fruit of faith in Christ. Is a life of self-control. Now this no doubt struck a chord. Again, I mean Paul is hitting on the point. He knows who he is speaking to. And he is hitting it hard. For if anything marked out the lives of Felix and Drusilla, it was a lack of self-control. Their whole relationship was built upon it. It was a lustful relationship. It was a relationship full of lust and, and power. Their relationship violated the laws of the Jews, and Drusilla knew it. Not only did it violate the law of the Jews, but more importantly, it violated the law of God. It was a lustful relationship, and no doubt. Paul's preaching was convicting at that point. Now, you know, it's interesting. Because we preach so much about the grace of God. And well, we should. We're always talking about the grace of God. I hear people all over. You get podcasts and the internet and books. It's grace, 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 grace. And that's great. But we need to understand that there is in the mission of the gospel. The point of living lives full of faithfulness and self-control. We don't like to talk about it much. About self-control being a mission of the gospel. It is a mission of gospel preaching. But, beloved, the Bible says too much about it for us to just ignore it. Do you realize that self-control is a fruit of the Spirit? Well, it says, skip over that one. 
What's the fruit of the Spirit? Oh, love, peace, and joy. Ah, and self-control, by the way. (laughs) Second Peter, chapter 1, verse 6. The Apostle Peter reminds us, doesn't it? Doesn't he? Reminds us that self-control is the pursuit of every Christian. It's what you ought to be adding to your life. Just as you add knowledge, the Bible says, to your knowledge add self-control. In 2 Peter chapter 1 and verse 7, the Bible tells us that we have not been given a spirit of fear, but a spirit of love, power, and what? Self-control. Control yourself. The Bible says in 1 Timothy chapter 3 and verse 2, there's a necessary quality of Christian maturity. Elders should be those who exercise self-control. But not only elders, in Titus chapter 2, it tells us that mature older men should be men who exercise self-control. But not only mature elderly men, the Bible says in 1 Timothy chapter 2 and verse 15, that women who are faithful women are women who are exercising self-control. Self-discipline, beloved, is expected of a disciple. You do understand that disciple rooted in what? Discipline. That's what it means to be a disciple. It is to be disciplined. Now, this is important, and we're going to spend some time here, Bob. <laughs> it's important because our world is out of control. The world is out of control. Just like Felix and Drusilla were. Our world is out of control, beloved. It celebrates sexual deviance. When it's the music... The movies, the magazines, even the games, everything is just filled with sexual innuendo and filled with an insatiable desire and drive for illicit sexual fulfillment. This is what Paul is talking about, you do understand, when he means self-control. He's controlling your hormones. More men and women, beloved, have forfeited the ministry due to a lack of self-control than perhaps anything else. It's not just sex. It's money. It's power. It's anger. Moses was denied entrance into the promised land because he lacked self-control. David lost out on his dream of building a temple for God because he lacked self-control. Samson lost all his powers because he lacked self-control. Solomon forfeited the kingdom because he lacked self-control. The Apostle Paul, understanding that, writes to the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians chapter 9 and verse 27. I discipline my body. I beat it and keep it under control. Why? Lest after I finish preaching, I myself would have to forfeit the ministry. This is what the gospel does, beloved. This is what it does. The grace of God is not so that you can get saved only. The grace of God is so that you can live like you saved. Stop, stop 
saying that you have God's grace and living like the devil. No. Contraire. Now, like I said, Bob, we're going to spend some time on this. Living lives. Pleasing God. The Bible says it's possible for the Christian to do, beloved, and not to live lives chasing all the time after the flesh. And fulfilling the lust of it. Now, I understand. We got a lot of young people in here. I understand. It's hard. I know that. I know that. Living self-controlled in an out-of-control world is not easy. We are bombarded on every hand. I get it. Our world is sex-crazed. I understand. It is consumed with self-fulfilling pleasure. I get that. Every Don't think your pastor is immune to that. He is not. Every day, in every way, I am bombarded just like you are. I know how hard it is. That's why, beloved, that's why. If I can impress upon you anything this morning, the self-controlled life is never lived by itself. And I just give you some practical help this morning. Don't walk the Christian life alone. Don't walk it alone. That's when you get in trouble. You're in trouble when you're alone. Don't live your life in isolation. Don't forsake the assembly of the saints. Somebody said it takes a village to raise a child. Yes, it does. But it also takes a village to raise a Christian. A Christian who is in self-controlled Christian. It takes a village. You don't go it alone. You just, you just can't go it alone. It's particularly true if you're single. I mean, it's just, it is so easy to isolate yourself. Listen, if you're living by yourself, get a roommate. Get a roommate. You are not going to make it. You're not going to make it by yourself. You can try. And people have tried. And I've seen them. One by one, just fall because you're not going to make it by yourself. Being idle is not good. you got to be in community as often as you can. Sitting around feeling sorry for yourself is not going to be good. Get in community. Get serving. Get to worship. Find the encouragement that comes from the spirit that comes in being community. But it's not just a message to single people. This is, married to, this is a message to married folks. <clears throat> Satan trying to take my voice, but he ain't going to get it before I get this out. Not before I get this out. I'm telling you, if you are married, don't live by yourself. Don't live separate lives. It's a, re- it's, a re- it's a recipe for disaster. You have no self-control like that. Don't have friends on Facebook who are not friends with your wife. Who are not friends with your husband. I'm not texting a woman that I can't have her forward that text to my wife. You must learn to live self-controlled lives. 
This is so important, beloved. It's so important. I just see too much of it. And I want you to understand that what I'm saying is rooted in the grace of God for you. Because if you've been saved this morning, if you have trusted in the gospel of Jesus Christ, if you have received the grace of God, then Titus chapter 2 and verse 11 says, For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation to all people, but not just salvation. The Bible says, read it, now teaching us to say no to ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in this present age. That's Bible. That's what the Bible says. That's what the grace of God does. And that just saves us. It teaches us to live Self-controlled, godly lives. Paul preached the righteousness of God, self-control, and the coming judgment. This is how he concludes his message to Felix, right? By reminding Felix that there is a coming judgment. Felix, you know where he stood. He stood there in judgment over Paul. And I'm sure he thought much of himself. That here is this one that everybody is seeming afraid of. Now I stand in judgment over him and Paul reminds him that though he may be responsible for adjudicating Paul's case... Yet there is one Felix who will come and ultimately is going to judge you. Human judges, no matter how powerful, they are not the final arbitrators of justice. They don't have the final word on judgment. And this is what Paul reminded Felix, that God is not going to allow sin to go unpunished. The Bible says in Hebrews chapter 9, verse 27, doesn't it? It's appointed unto man once to die. And then the judgment. Judgment is coming. Judgment is coming. Beloved God is not mocked. Whatever a person sows, that shall he also reap. Now, I know we don't like to talk about judgment either. We like to talk about nice things. We like to have a church that talks about nice things because we want a place where people come and they feel welcomed and comfortable. We like to have a place where people can come and they can feel at ease. Whether we want to admit it or not, we think that really the most successful churches, we really think that the most successful churches are those churches that have the most people in them. And that's why we're always trying to figure out how, what can we do to get more people to come in our church? When in reality, that is not the measure of success, beloved. The measure of success is those churches that are faithfully proclaiming the righteousness of God, the self-control, and the final judgment to come. It's not the churches that do all they can to please people. It is churches that stand firm on the proclamation of the gospel of Christ. And those who come and know Christ as their Savior come and rejoice in the fact that they have been redeemed and saved from that judgment. And so Paul reminded Felix, there is a judgment. And a judgment is coming because there is a God. 
And this God is a God who is all-knowing, beloved. Hebrews chapter 4, verse 13. And no creature is hidden from his sight. But all, all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him in whom we must give an account. He knows it all. You're not, and I'm not, and Felix and Drusilla were not getting away with anything. He knows it all because he is everywhere present all the time. The eyes of the Lord, Proverbs says, are in every place, beholding the evil and the good. I used to tell my kids when they were small that daddy's got cameras all over the house. (laughs) You're not getting away with anything. You might as well come clean because I saw it. I have cameras everywhere. You can't see them. And they looking around. And you can't see them. But I know what you did. So just come clean. When God says that, there won't be laughing. Because it will be true. The eyes of the Lord are in every place. Beholding the evil and the good. And there is no one who will escape his judgment. Beloved, Paul finished preaching to Felix. Notice what Felix did. The Bible says he trembled. He trembled. Eared. There arose in his heart a sense of awe at the righteous requirement of God, at the nature of his unholy life, and the fact that those two one day are going to meet in judgment. And he's afraid. But unfortunately, That's all he was, was afraid. And he was only afraid for a moment. For he sent Paul away. And then after discussing it with Drusilla, he says, let's get Paul back again. Because maybe we can get something out of him. Maybe we can get a bribe. Keep coming back, Paul. Keep coming back, Paul. Beloved, this is no joke. Felix kept hearing, but he never heard. Like those in 2 Timothy chapter 3 and verse 7, who are ever learning, but never coming to the truth. Ever learning, but never coming to the truth. Is that you this morning? You do understand that Felix was acquainted with Christ. The Bible says that he was acquainted with the way. He knew about Christ. He knew that Christ had lived. He knew that Christ had taught love of God and love for neighbor. He knew that Christ had died and was crucified on the cross. He knew that Christ was buried and laid in a tomb. He knew that Christ's disciples were out there preaching that Christ had been raised from the dead. He was aware of the resurrection. He was aware of the testimony of the disciples. He knew all about Christ. But he didn't know him. It's possible this morning to know about Jesus, but not know Jesus. The sad testimony, beloved. Felix only wanted to hear Paul to see what he could get out of him. That was the only reason. What was in it for him? That's how people come to church sometimes, isn't it? 
Maybe that's why you're here this morning. Why are you here? Hoping to find a wife or a husband? That's that. Do you know people leave churches this small because there are not enough single people in it? Because they go to church looking for a wife or husband, as if the Bible says to go to church looking for a wife or husband. Is that why you're here this morning? Looking for something for you? Or perhaps you are here because your wife or your husband would be upset with you if you didn't come. I keep going back because I don't want to hear them out. <laughs> or perhaps you are here because there's no football game today. And you got a free Sunday. Is that you? Or perhaps you come because you just want to make sure the kids are around Christians at least one day a week. Is that you this morning? Is that why you keep coming back? Or is it because you have a love for Christ that you want to live a life that is pleasing to him? That you have your portion in the righteousness of Christ and you want to worship the God who has saved you from the judgment and the wrath to come. And you come because you can't help but come. You come because you have no other alternative to come. You come because it is here, Lord, that we find the words of life. We have no other place to go. That's why I come. Why are you here this morning? Can you sing? I'm here. Because, as far as I am concerned, there's nothing but the blood. Nothing but the blood. If it had not been for the blood of Christ, where would I be? Can you sing that this morning? Nothing but the blood. I pray, beloved, that every person here is here because they desire the blood of Christ upon their life. I want to pray for us. I want to pray for us and pray that no one leaves here except they know that Christ is theirs and they are Christ this day and always. Let's pray.